Good morning. We are so glad that you're joining us by way of Facebook Live or YouTube Live. We're so glad that you're with us this morning at Late Point Church, wherever you are, wherever you're watching from, whether you're on the couch or you're still in bed, whether you're watching from Australia or maybe just down the road from us. We're, we're glad that you could join us here at Late Point Church. I hope you enjoyed the worship by Pastor Tom and Terry this morning. And uh, as, as you can see, um, if you've been with us before, uh, this is a different environment. Um, we are in our church fellowship hall. We call it the South Hall, but that's where we're at. And uh, we're hanging out here, and uh, we've dreamlined, uh, downsized our team to just a couple people um, that in the, in the room due to the lockdown and um, and I'm hoping that you're staying at home as well, as much as possible. And I was just praying, you know, through this crisis that God will, uh, that we will find a cure, that God will bring us a cure and a vaccine, and, and that we can at some point get back to normal. And, uh, and I know for so many of you, uh, this is a time of testing, a time of trials. And, um, you know, some of you have uh, been laid off. And um, you, you don't know if you're going to get a job back. And, and, and I know there's so many uncertainties. I just want you to know we're, we're praying for you and um, we care. And uh, if, there's, if there's anything we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate in order to let us know. A um, couple of things that we're doing here at Lake Point, um, we are starting tonight virtual life groups. Virtual life groups. That means from your computer, laptop, a smartphone or tablet, you can be a part of a community going through a Bible study but connecting with each other. And that starts tonight. We've got 12 different groups. So look um, on the link below. Find a group. They, some start tonight. Some start throughout the week. Uh, some during the day. Some at night. And uh, But find a group that best fit you and jump in. And uh, again, this is a group where you don't leave your house. You're, you're, you can fellowship, and connect with other believers. Also, I want to say a word of thank you for the way you have been given uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, so many of you have just been faithful. Um, you, you mailed it or you give online. Um, and and uh, thank you. And uh, God has been so good. And we're able to pay the bills and, and do ministry to bless so many people in our community and help people, whatever the needs are. And, um, and if you'd like to give, and if you're able to give, um, there's a link as well. And so click on that link um, somewhere on, on, on the platform that you're watching it from. And, uh, and, and then you should have got a copy of the handout notes. You'll see there, there's a link there as well. So while well, I want to jump in, we're in a series called When Love Speaks. When Love Speaks. So we're, we're looking at the final words on the cross that we hear from Jesus. And a real quick review, we've looked at the, the words of Jesus, the word of assurance, where he looks at the thieves on the cross, the thief on the cross, and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we look at another word, the following week, called the word of love, and that's when he looked at Mary, his mom, and his disciple John, and he said, Mary, this is your son John, take care of him, and John, this is my mother Mary, take care of him. And, and in Jesus' most painful moment, he wasn't concerned about himself. He was more concerned about other people. And there was some, some wonderful application from that statement 
that he made and the word of love. And then the third week, we look at the word of faith, the word of faith. And we look at uh, something that Jesus said before he got on the cross. We actually took a step back, and the, and, and the day before he was hung on the cross, he was meeting with the disciples, and he told them in John chapter 16, he said, you know, in the world, you're going to have trouble. But then he said, but rejoice, I have overcome the world. And we talk about what that means, especially in our time that we're in right now. And then last Sunday, we look at the word of substitution. The word of substitution. That's when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there are three more statements that Jesus makes on the cross. And uh, the three final statements. And they're all said in the last few minutes before he died. And so the other statements that he made, they're made you know, throughout his time on the cross. In fact, he was on the cross for six hours. Six hours he was on that cross. He was hung at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I want you to help you understand this. You know, when he was hung up on the cross, when he died on the cross at 9 o'clock, when, when they put him on the cross at 9 o'clock, he had been up all night. You know, the night before, he had his last supper with the, with the disciples in the upper room. And then he left there to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember, he's praying. And while he's praying, um, a, a mob led by one of his disciples, Judas, who betrayed him, they led a mob to Jesus. They arrested Jesus that night. And then they took him to the chief priest's house, the high priest, and uh, the, the, the leaders, and, and finally, by early morning, they dragged Jesus to the house of Pontius Pilate. And he's the governor of that territory, the Roman governor. And if you remember, he washes his hand of Jesus. He said, I have nothing to do with him. I see no fault in him. And then he tells the Jewish leader, hey, do what you want with him, because the blood is not on my hand. The blood is on your hands. And so that, they took Jesus from there, and that's when Jesus died on the cross. So Jesus, all night long, had been beaten, been going through trial, you know, had not slept all night. And by nine o'clock in the morning, he is on the cross. And we look at this, one of the final three statements. We're going to look at the first of the final three statements, I'm thirsty. When Jesus cries out, I'm thirsty, and I call this the word of humanity. The word of humanity. We see this in John chapter 19 and verse number 28. The Bible says later, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Verse 29. It says, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and they lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, a couple quick things I want to uh, highlight here, uh, if, if you will. We, we see, first of all, the, uh, the word vinegar. They, they gave Jesus something to drink. And the word vinegar is literally the word pasca. It's a type of drink. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, man, they gave Jesus something to drink? And of all the drink that they could give Jesus, they gave him vinegar? I mean, what is that? Pickle juice? I mean, did they give Jesus something that was terrible and disgusting? And, and I want you to understand what this is, because pasca... It's actually the real name of this drink. 
And pasta was a very common flavored drink. And what it was is that the, that the wine that got bad, the wine that was spoiled, and instead of throwing it, throwing it away, they would reuse spoiled bad wine, and, and they would use it in the water. So, by the way, the water that they would drink out of the well and out of the, the stream for big. Filthy, dirty water had a bad aftertaste. Uh, so what they would do is they pour a little bit of vinegar, this bad wine, into the into that water, add a little herb to it, and it would actually become a very flavorful drink. And a lot of people would actually carry this water in their canteens. Roman soldiers they would actually have this type of drink called pasta. It was water, mostly water, uh, with a little bit of this spoiled bad wine vinegar, and they would call it pasta. And, 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 and a lot of them didn't realize this, but it, was, uh, it actually uh, fought against any bacteria that was in the water. They didn't know they were doing it that way, but it actually made it tasteful, and it kind of hid all the bad aftertaste. So that's what they gave Jesus. So I want you to understand that. But here's another word I want you to understand, the word I am thirsty. And you need to understand I am thirsty. The, the Greek word for that is dip, dip, sao. That's the Greek word. And what that means is to suffer from thirst. To suffer from thirst. In, in other words, Jesus at this point is dying of thirst. He's not casually saying, hey, by the way, I want something to drink. It's not like me walking into the kitchen and my wife came and said, hey, Scott, we like something to drink. It's like, sure, I'll take something to drink. You know, um, that's not the position that Jesus is in. He's not casually thirsty. He is he is dying of thirst at this point. And, and I'm wondering, why did Jesus take so long to ask for something to drink? Why did he wait a full six hours on the cross and not asking for water at any point or pasta or something to drink at all? And, and, and in fact, in, a, in another gospel account in Mark chapter 15, this is six hours earlier, okay? 9 o'clock a.m. And at 9 o'clock a.m., they gave something to Jesus to drink. In Mark chapter 15, verse 23, then they, this is the soldiers, all right, they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. Wine mixed with myrrh. But notice what he did. Jesus did not take it. He didn't take the drink. And that's what that 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock in the morning. This was when it was first put on the cross. Now, you understand, this is not Pascha. Wine mixed with myrrh is a total different drink. In fact, the word myrrh, we understand what myrrh is. In fact, that's one of the gifts that the wise men gave to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And myrrh is a type of medicine. Myrrh is a painkiller. It's used for a lot of other different purposes. But its primary purpose, its primary purpose was for a painkiller. Long before medicine, long before anesthesia, long before Advil, people used myrrh as a painkiller, and they would mix it in a drink, and then they would, they would drink that, and, and they would use it for medicine purpose. And so when Jesus was first crucified at 9 o'clock in Mark chapter 15, the executioner, they offered Jesus a painkiller right away, but he doesn't take it. He doesn't take the drink. Why? Because Jesus wanted to experience the full judgment 
the full suffering for the sins of the world. He, he wanted to be mentally alert. He didn't want to be numbed while he was taking the sins of the world upon himself. And so he refuses the wine mixed with myrrh at 9 o'clock. By the way, think about this. The soldiers, you know why the soldiers gave it to him? It wasn't because they were trying to be humane. You know, they didn't really care about his thirst or not at this point. The only reason why that the soldiers, they offered this wine with myrrh was for their own benefit. They, they didn't want to hear the criminal scream the whole time. You see, crucifixion was a long, drawn-out process. And, and you didn't die instantly like an electric chair, you know, where it's done. I mean, this would take hours upon hours upon hours, sometimes days. And if you're a Roman soldier, soldier and you're stationed at that cross, and you're listening to the scream, you don't want to hear it all day. And so they would offer this, this painkiller so that they wouldn't have to hear the scream all day long. And so Jesus, he refuses to drink. He refuses it. Now, six hours later, John chapter 19, go back to John 19, we see there. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. Let me ask you a question. What's been finished? What is finished? After he had finished paying for the sins of the world. Remember last week we talked about him, you know, being just our substitute. He had just cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had, at that moment in time, was taking on the sins of the world. He had experienced the separation and the judgment of God. God's justice had been satisfied, knowing that everything had now been finished, knowing that everything had now been completed and sin been paid for. Then, this is where Jesus says, now give me something to drink. I'm thirsty. And here's what's happening on the cross. There's a physical reality. There's a spiritual reality. It's all coming together. We, we, we see Jesus' humanity. We see his humanity. He's fully 100% man. He's one of us. But we also see Jesus' divinity. Fully God. He's 100% God. And the humanity of Jesus and, and the divinity of Jesus, they collide on the cross. They come together. And we call this, and there's a real fancy word on it, we call it the hypostatic union. It's a theological word. The hypostatic union. That's not a word that you're going to probably use this week in your sentence, you know, or any conversation. But what it means is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus on the cross, and Jesus living here on earth, he wasn't 50 God, 50% God and 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man. And here's why this is important. And this is where we're going this morning. Because Jesus is 100% like us, he can sympathize with us and understand the pain of being human. But because Jesus was 100% God, he is powerful enough to save us from the pain of being human. Let me, let me break this statement down. If you're taking notes, and if you're taking notes, here's the first thought. Jesus' thirst understands my pain. Jesus' thirst 
understands my pain. Because Jesus is 100% like us. Jesus understands what I'm going through right now. He knows all about it. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 and 5, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment which he took, right? The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. I love what he said in verse 4. He, 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 took up, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. He felt our pain. Jesus knows your pain. He knows your physical pain. He, he knows what you're going through. Maybe you're going through some chronic pain in your life. Uh, or maybe you have migraines, headaches all the time. God, Jesus knows about it. You may be incapacitated in some way. Jesus knows about it. He understands your pain. He knows physical pain. He's experienced it here on earth when he was the son of man. He also knows about emotional pain. He knows about your emotional pain. Have you ever been abused? Jesus has and knows all about it. Have you ever been beaten up? Well, Jesus knows what it means to be beaten up. Have you been rejected and mocked and spit upon? Jesus knows. He's been there. He's done that. Have you been mistreated, misunderstood, devalued? Jesus knows all about it. Have you gone through the depths of despair and, and, and maybe some depression because of all the pressure in your life? I want you to know this. He knows that. And he understands your emotional pain. He knows. He also knows your relational pain. He knows what it feels like to have people that love him to all of a sudden be gone. He, he knows what it feels like to have people in his own family that didn't believe in him, that made fun of him and mocked him. And maybe you've experienced relational pain. Maybe, maybe you're trying to deal with a, a relationship with one of your children, and, and it's not where it needs to be, and there's pain. Uh, maybe with your spouse or maybe an ex-spouse, and, and there's, there's relationship, relational pain. You've experienced betrayal from a friend, from family members. I want you to know this. Jesus understands your pain. He, he knows all about your fears. He knows all about your anxiety. He knows. He knows. I know a lot of us, we're going through this season right now with a lot of unknowns, a lot of fears. My friend, Jesus knows. He understands. He would like us. He understands your pain. And we have a Savior who understands what we go through because he was one of us. He walked a mile in our shoes. The Bible says it like this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. This high priest of ours, this is our Savior, Jesus Christ, he understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same tests than we do, yet he did not sin. Matt Lucado, he said this in the, in the book, he chose the nail. And this is what he says. He, he knew you would be weary, 
weary. He knew that you would be disturbed and angry. He knew you'd be sleepy, grief-stricken, and hungry. He, he knew you faced pain, if not the pain of the body, the, the pain of the soul, pain too sharp for any drug. He knew you faced thirst, if not a thirst for water, at least a thirst for truth. And the truth that we glean from the image of a thirsty Christ is that he understands. He understands. And because he understands, we, we can come to him. We can come to him. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. The Bible said that Jesus, he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, at any point, when Jesus was living here, when Jesus was on that cross, at any point, Jesus could have pulled out his God card. He could have pulled out his God card and said, I, I, I have enough. Enough is enough. I don't want to suffer anymore. But the Bible said that he emptied himself. It took on the form of a man. He, he could have pulled out his God card, commanded the angel to come down to rescue him. He, he, he could have had, in fact, he had the power to remove himself from the cross and go full on Braveheart on all the Roman soldiers. He, he could have pulled his God card. He could have done all that. But think about this. He's suffering from thirst. Jesus First miracle, turn water into wine. Jesus walk on water. Jesus calmed the water in the storm. He's the one that created and sustained the very water that covered the earth. And on the cross, he's deathly thirsty. And he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Though he was fully God, became fully like us. This means we have a God that we can relate to. That he's not some distant, somewhere off the cosmos, you know, deity. You know, he didn't just, you know, treat the earth like a spin top and just kind of pull it and, and then it's just, okay, wherever it goes, it goes and, and mind his own business somewhere else in another galaxy. No, he knows your pain. He was one of us. And because Jesus is 100% like us, he can sympathize with us and understand the pain of being human. But he didn't stop there. You see, if he was only man and not God, then his death on the cross means nothing to us. And here's the second point. Jesus' thirst is proof of his divinity. Remember, there's two worlds happening. There's the, there's the physical world and it's a spiritual world and it's all taking place right here in this moment. Because Jesus is 100% unlike us. Because he is divine. He has the power to do something about our pain. He understands our pain 
But now he has the power to do something about it. John chapter 19, look at verse 28 again. Right, he said, and later knowing that everything had not been finished, right, sin had been paid for. And look at this next statement here. So that scripture would be fulfilled. What, what, what is that? What is he talking about, that the scripture would be fulfilled? And for thousands of years, God has kept telling the Jewish nation, the Israelites, you know, I'm going to come to earth as a Messiah, and I'm going to send a Savior. He's going to die for you. He could be the suffering, suffering servant. And over and over and over again, for thousands of years, God kept telling the Israelites, hey, I'm sending a Savior, the Messiah. He's coming. In fact, over 380 times across 4,000 years before the crucifixion, God tells the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, here's how you're going to know the one and true Messiah. And he gives a condition. He says, you know that it's really me when this happens and when this takes place and, and when he does this. And God gave the conditions because he knows that there will be random people that will pop up and say, hey, you know, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior. And God said, you know what? Do, do they fulfill all the conditions? And so he did all this. God did all this so that you can tell the fake from the real. And so God gave 380 plus conditions, and they're called prophecies. Prophecies. Now, for Jesus to be who he claimed to be, he would have to fulfill every one of those prophecies. And he did. He fulfilled every single one of them. And so Jesus, he's hanging on the cross. And there's another prophecy that needs to, that needs to be fulfilled. And it's found in the book of Psalm. It talks about the Messiah. And notice what he said. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. This is in Psalm. This is 1,500 years before Jesus comes around. Before Jesus comes around. The probability of one person fulfilling all 380 prophecies, every one of them, it, the number would be so astronomical, the probability. It would be so big. It would be bigger than I could put on the screen. So let me break this down to you. If, if, you, if one person could fulfill just eight Old Testament prophecies, if you could fulfill just eight Old Testament prophecies, then the number would be a hundred quadrillion. It's like a hundred quadrillion. What is that? Right? That, that is the next number, one and ten to the seventeen power. In other words, you take a number one and you add seventeen and zero, and that's what you see right here. That's how big a hundred quadrillion uh, is. And, and the chance of one person fulfilling just eight Old Testament prophecies, that's the chances. That's the chances. And my friend, it actually takes more faith to believe that Jesus wasn't the Messiah than he was if he followed a thousand of years of prophecies. And let me help you with the hundred quadrillion. I mean, let me break this down for you. Because uh, the, the guy that came up with this, his name is Peter Stoner. He's a mathematician, a scientist. And he said that if you were to cover the state of Texas 
with 100 quadrillion silver dollars. Silver dollars. He said, you will cover the entire state of Texas, and it will be two feet deep. That's how many hundred quadrillion will cover the state of Texas. Two feet of silver dollars, a hundred quadrillion silver dollars. And then you would take a blind person. And, and, and you would blind, or you, I'm not a blind person, but you blindfold a person. And you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm, I've got this one silver dollar. We're going to put a big giant etch on it. I'm going to throw it in the middle of Texas, and I'm going to stir it up with a giant spoon in all of Texas. And I'm going to blindfold a person. I'm going to make him walk through. He can walk anywhere he wants in Texas. And he has one shot out there to pick up one silver dollar. And that's the chance he has, one in 100 quadrillion. And that, my friend, is the chance for a person to fulfill only eight Old Testament. And Jesus fulfilled 300 in 80 plus prophecies. But there's something else I want you to notice that happened on the cross. Because that, that just was another sign. And if you were a Jewish person, you were watching Jesus taking that drink and say, you know what? Here's another sign. He's the Messiah. But here, here's something else that happened. Well, look at verse 29 in John chapter 19. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lip. They took a hyssop stick and they put the sponge on the end. Why did they do that? Well, Jesus' hands were nailed. They couldn't give him a cup. You know, he couldn't hold on to a cup. So they, put, they dipped the sponge into that pasta drink and they lifted it to the mouth of Jesus. And there's something very significant when the Roman soldiers use that hyssop stick, the hyssop stick to reach the mouth of Jesus' mouth. And any Jew would have known the significance of it because it goes back to 1,500 years, 2,000 years before this happened to the days of Moses. The children of Israel had been slaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. God raised up Moses to set them free. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. That ain't happening. And so this happened. So they had a little God contest. They had 10 plagues. There were 10 plagues. God, God turned the, the, the river into blood and, and, and darkness around the world. And then lices and, and, and grasshoppers. And it's a 10 awful plagues to show, hey, I am God. I am much bigger than you, Pharaoh. They come down to the last plague. And God, God tells the Jewish people, he said, I'm going to send a spirit, a spirit throughout the land. It's going to kill all the firstborn sons. And then he tells the Israelites a very specific instruction. He said, to show your faith in me. God says, to show your faith in me. Here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish. And I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And I want you to take the blood from that lamb. And I want you to paint the doorposts of your house, all the doorposts of your home, so that when the death angel comes by that night, he will pass over your house. And this is where we get the word Passover. The Jewish people, they still celebrate Passover today. 
It's when the death angel passed over all the houses of the Jews because they have painted the blood on the doorpost as a sign of their faith. But when you notice how they were supposed to paint the blood on the doorpost, the next verse is from 1,500 years ago. God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, he said, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, I put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. And this is what happened. And when the Roman soldier took the hyssop plant and put the sponge on top of it and held it up to Jesus who dying and bleeding for the sins of the world, for every person that's ever been born, and every Jewish person standing there said, man, there's another sign. There's another sign. This is the guy. This is the Lamb of God, the, the, the perfect son of, son of God, the blemish. Without blemish, the Lamb of God dying for the sins of the world and Passover, where they put the blood on the doorpost, which signifies the cross, with a picture of what Jesus was going to do for everyone. So when Jesus says, I'm thirsty, it shows that he really was the promised Messiah and that he is unlike us, that he's divine and can take the pain away. I want to land the plane here. And here's what I hope you'll take away. It's the third thought. Jesus thirsts for God. Prompt me to thirst after him. I'm here to say this, to stop looking for your satisfaction in this world because we're looking for it all the wrong places. And Jesus said, hey, come to me. I can satisfy your soul. And we're all trying to look for something in this world to make our lives happy, to, to make our lives fulfilled, to find significant. You know, sometimes we say, man, if I could just wear these certain kind of clothes, then I'll be cool. Or if I can just get my hair done a certain way, you know, I could be cool. If you can find a barber shop open to do your haircut, great, you know. But, you know, hey, there's this mindset, hey, if I can do this, if I can have that, if I can have that job, if I can get that promotion, if I can have that car, if I can just, whatever. We're, we're constantly searching for satisfaction, and we miss it when it's not found in Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, my people have committed two sins. The first sin is they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, the water that would totally satisfy their thirst. And here's the second sin. They've dug their own cisterns. In other words, they've dug their own wells. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God said, not only have you rejected me and not looked to me to meet all your needs and satisfy your life, you're going out there trying to meet it on your own. You've dug a well called a career. You've dug a well called this hobby. You've dug a well whatever you want to call it, that relationship. And not that those things are bad, but it's not going to truly satisfy the deep longing of your soul. And God said, man, I am the one that can do that. I am the one that can, that can dominate the thirst that you're looking for. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37. He said, let anyone, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, 
as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He said, if you try to keep digging and digging for your own water, it's not going to find it. But I, Jesus said, can give you rivers of living water. John chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus was at the well with the lady at Samaria. And she said, everyone who drank this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about that well, the physical well that they were at. But then he said, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said, when you look to me, you'll be permanently satisfied. I put a spring of living water, water that will never run dry. And Jesus thirsts on the cross, prompted by thirst for him. There's a lyric to an old gospel song. And here's what the chorus says. The chorus says, he said, I thirst, yet he made the river. He said, I thirst, yet he made the sea. I thirst, said the king of the ages. In his great thirst, he brought water to me. Jesus thirst on the cross so that you don't have to thirst. He paid for what you don't have to pay for. He became thirsty so that you can never have to be thirsty again. And because Jesus is fully human, he understands your pain. But because he's fully God, he can save us from our pain. Jesus' thirst for God prompts you and I to be thirsty for him. And I pray that this week that you will long after him. The wells that we have dug up, some of our wells have been dried. You have put your hope and satisfaction in the things of this world, and maybe in the last couple of weeks, it has disappeared. But I tell you who never disappears, who's always there, and that's our Jesus, the one who thirsts, provides water for you and for me. He, and only he, can truly satisfy. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of this statement on the cross when he cried out, I'm thirsty. It shows that he's 100% man. Oh, he could have pulled out the God card. He could have ended it. But he suffered. And he understands the pain that we're in. He'd walk a mile in our shoes. He can sympathize with us. He's not some distant deity that we can't reach out to. God, he is with us in the chaos. But God, because he is 100% divine, 100% God, he can remove the pain. And only he can satisfy our soul. God, I pray that in our spiritual thirst, that we will be thirsty for him and him alone, not the things that the world has to offer. I pray that we reach out to him. We thank you 
that we have eternal life that can only be found in your son Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.